On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on the dossier. If you tell me, hey, Don, this is what I really expected or wanted in order to tell, you know, my story, because I know my story has value. It's a story that spans, you know, a very long period of time, starting in Oregon and going through, you know, my time in the LAPD, my time as it relates, you know, to your prison sentence, all of these things, right? This is a massive story. My question is, you say starting from Oregon, why you cut out my childhood growing up in Compton, my adolescence? You don't think that's relevant? Mm. The foundation of everything. Yes, David. I, I didn't mean to say I, that wasn't something I wanted to cover. That, to me, I think arguably might be the most fascinating part of it. In growing up in Compton, is that something that you think really defined your life or no? Of course. Yeah. I mean, the whole, sometimes I look back, I look like right now. And I think per population... That city might have some of the most talent that's ever come out. I'm talking about sports, yeah, entertainment, just for such a small area per capita. They may, we might have produced some of the greatest people, you know, around. Just like, damn, what is it in the water or what? In season one of the dossier, you may remember Reggie Wright Jr. arguing that there's no evidence that exists that proves David Mack was even from Compton. Well, hopefully, David Mack himself pointing out how growing up in Compton was the foundation of everything clears that up for us. But the question I now have is why was Reggie Wright Jr. lying about that? What would be the reason? It is scary to think that all the information I talked about in the first episode was all contained on just two pages of what I'm calling the holy grail document of the Biggie murder. The document that outlines every piece of evidence that LAPD investigators can use to prosecute the killers of Biggie or the evidence that the Wallace family can still use to sue the city of Los Angeles for wrongful death. A lawsuit, if filed today, could command an upwards of a billion dollars. As we proceed through the document, it just gets more interesting and more unbelievable. So jumping back in, here is the next piece of evidence. On August 20th, 2007, the Wallace family and their lawyers were informed that the city of Los Angeles legal team had been advised two years earlier in July that a witness had information that was relevant to the Wallace murder. The city of LA 
and the LAPD investigators had been keeping the fact of the witness's existence secret for well over two years and been keeping that information he provided, which goes to the heart of the Wallace family case, secret for at least 15 months. A motion to compel asks the court to order either the opposing party or a third party to take some action. The motion to compel is used to ask the court to order the non-complying party to produce the documentation or information requested, and or to sanction the non-complying party for their failure to comply with the discovery requests. If a party or its attorney fails to participate in good faith in developing and submitting a proposed discovery plan as required by Rule 26 F, the court may, after giving an opportunity to be heard, require that party or attorney to pay to any other party the reasonable expenses, including attorney's fees, caused by the failure. The City of LA withheld this evidence for the 15 months basically saying, that no evidence existed implicating David Mack in the murder. The time sequence and witness importance is as follows. Eric Fairmont, who was in prison at the California Correctional Institution for Men in Chino, California, during the same period that Marion Suge Knight was incarcerated at that facility. Eric Fairmont contacted Don Vincent by telephone. Now, Don Vincent, if you remember from season one, was the deputy city attorney in Los Angeles. And if you don't remember, let me explain him very quickly. Don Vincent was the guy who traveled around, for lack of a better word, intimidating witnesses. He intimidated Kenneth Boagney. He was the city attorney who was tasked with basically covering up any information that was favorable to the Wallace family or anything damaging to the city of LA and the LAPD. If there's a real bad guy in this story, Don Vincent is a part of the team. Here again is Kenneth Boagney on his experiences meeting with Don Vincent. You know, I, I got, I'm a good judge of character. I just didn't trust Don Vincent, you know, because he came up there on his own. He came to Calipatra State Prison, him and another guy, on his own, you know, and, uh, really try to persuade me not to uh, testify in a civil trial or do a deposition. He wanted me to go away, man. He made it perfectly clear. He, you know, he wanted me to disappear. You know what I'm saying? He was real, uh, you know, he was real adamant. You know, they were finna fight, man. Don Vincent and Rowdy Gage was getting ready to fight, man. Inside Calipatra visiting room. Because they was accusing each other of calling me a jailhouse informant. Now, I'm playing devil's advocate here. The LAPD or city could make the argument that Eric Fairmont maybe was trading information to get out of jail. Or maybe he was playing a game where he would snitch on Suge Knight. Either way, he could not be credible. That's fine. But what does the city of LA do? What do their attorneys do? The substance of the conversation in the related correspondence was not provided to the Wallace family or the court to establish what was talked about between Eric Fairmont and Don Vincent. Why? Why was the city of LA withholding this information? Well, the story gets a little more interesting. 
you know, Sergio gave me a whole uh, a whole litany of documents, and some of them I went through. I found this document, and I'm going to scan it, and I'll send it to you. But I wanted to, to get your analysis of a few things of what I found in the documents and a few names to see if it rang any bells with you. Is that all right? Okay. Yeah. So the first thing that I saw in terms of evidence is that there was another witness who had a similar story of Mario Hammond. Um, and this guy's name was Eric Fairmont. And Fairmont wrote a letter to Don Vincent, who you remember was the city attorney for Los Angeles, who was kind of trying to shut everything down. Um, right. Did you ever come across Fairmont? No, I didn't. On May 1st of 2006, the city attorney's office and Don Vincent received a follow-up letter from Mr. Fairmont in which Fairmont advised them that after Suge Knight and he were released from prison, Fairmont met Knight in Los Angeles. At that time, Knight stated to Fairmont that Puffy and Biggie's mom, Valletta Wallace, has constantly got people investigating him. His plan, originally, was to get Puffy and Biggie at the same time. Suge also said his boy called and told him that he had Biggie in his sight and don't trip because he won't miss. His boy Mac that's locked up and his other police that he has on his team is going to look out for him. That's Fairmont's words, not mine. Now Diddy, that famous Source Award speech where Suge got up there mm -hmm. and he said, uh, dancing all in the videos and all that. Did you, you thought that was you immediately or it had to hit you later? Um, I really couldn't believe it because homeboy, me and him were, were, were friends. I was like, wow. And I was like, you know, I could blow this thing up right now, you know. You know, and, um, you know, I decided I, I just felt it was really dangerous. You know what I'm right. saying? Some people are gangsters that at the end of the day could just turn it up and just right. be like, fuck it. And some people have like a level of conscience because of their relationship with God. Mm. And so me knowing that I could do mass destruction, it, was, it wasn't something that, that was authentic to me. I, that wasn't who I was. The letter was forwarded by Deputy City Attorney John Wright to LAPD Detectives Tyndall and Holcomb. Detective Holcomb contacted United States attorneys in Las Vegas, a Las Vegas PD detective, and an FBI agent named Rich Beasley, who all vouched that Eric Fairmont was worth interviewing. He was credible. Now, LAPD detectives Tyndall and Holcomb traveled to Las Vegas and interviewed Fairmont. Fairmont's story is a bit interesting, but again, I'll take this with a grain of salt. Fairmont tells the detectives the following. He was a trustee at the prison in Chino. He was assigned to assist in receiving Suge Knight as a prisoner at the facility. Fairmont made several phone calls for Suge. When Fairmont was released from custody, Knight arranged to have $500 wired to him to travel to LA where he met with Suge. Fairmont states, that Suge told him, and I quote, he had his boy Mac or Mackie take care of the murder of Wallace. Mac was an ex-LAPD police officer doing time. 
Knight had police officers that worked for him and gave him information. And through his police contacts, Knight knew where Wallace was at and directed Mac to take care of him. He called me in the cell and the whole mood changed. You know, his whole aura, his whole mood changed. And he, you know, I was there when uh, that fat motherfucker got killed. I said, what, you bullshit? And then he came and he started telling me the whole story. He told me uh, he was working security with Mac, a couple of other LAPD with some other officers from other departments. They were working uh, security for death row records. Uh, he said they had two-way radios. Uh, earlier in that week, they had been stalking uh, Biggie and uh, his whole crew. They had been watching them and stalking and stuff like that. I say stalking, but that's not his words. Those are mine. I say stalking because when you watch somebody kill him, I think he's stalking. I think he made him pray. The car used during the murder was a Malibu or Impala that he kept covered in one of his associates' backyard, and the car had been painted. The investigation of the Biggie Smalls murder led us towards a very distinctive vehicle. It was a black Chevrolet SS with chrome wheels, and I believe there was a limited amount of those vehicles sold here in California. And when we searched David Mack's residence, a vehicle similar to that uh, was found in his, uh, in his garage. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Toni Morrison, a mesmerizing coming-of-age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead, who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman too will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers and seriouses, liars, and assassins, the inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day, or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special or you and the wife Need a scintillating night out every once in a while, at least. So download Earn In Today, spelled E A R N I N, 
in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Here comes the information of the legal game of chicken the city of LA was playing. And if I'm being honest, I'm not sure why. They could have argued that Fairmont was incredible. They could argue he was a career criminal, but something must have triggered them to not provide that evidence. But it's more nuanced than that. The letter, statement, and other items pertaining to Fairmont were not produced to the Wallace family lawyers until August of 2007. These dates are important as the dates are when the city and the Wallace family were battling in a Los Angeles courtroom. It is clear that in spite of the undisputed intent of the court regarding what was to be produced to the Wallace family, the city and its counsel intentionally withheld all information they had received from Mr. Fairmont and would probably never have turned over this evidence unless ordered by a judge. At this point in the document, they mention an important name, and that name is Gerald In the late 90s, the Department of Justice um, sent a letter to the Los Angeles, I think at that time I was president of the police commission, sent a letter saying basically under their jurisdiction they were going to sue the city for um, unconstitutional patterns and practices and that we could negotiate with the department to create a consent decree which had 187 paragraphs and a number of reforms that had to be undertaken. When Bill Bratton arrived, um, he enthusiastically endorsed this and brought me into the department to, as he said, since I was one of the negotiators, I got us into this. It's time for me to help get us out of it. Chaleff is an interesting fella. And if I was in Vegas, I would put my money on the fact that he knows exactly what was covered up by the LAPD and the city. He's a powerful man maybe the most powerful in the equation of the Biggie cover-up. He's a longtime defense attorney. Chaliff served as deputy counsel to the Webster Commission, which investigated the LAPD's handling of the Rodney King riots. In 97, he was appointed to the police commission. Later, he was named president of the commission and played an instrumental role in negotiating the Department of Justice consent decree of the LAPD. The LAPD federal consent decree. It was to be enforced for five years and if in compliance for two consecutive years the LAPD would be relieved of the federal oversight and monitoring costs and procedures. We asked Chief Bratton how is the department doing? Since my appointment I have embraced the idea of the consent decree from a positive perspective that one, we have to comply with it, there's no getting around it. But two, that it effectively will give the Los Angeles Police Department best practices in many, many areas. Use of force, discipline, computer systems to monitor our employees. 
The fact that the Biggie murder happened while the LAPD was under siege is not a small fact. And I have to say, in conversations with my friend Sergio Robledo, he would always implore me to dig deeper into the consent decree, dig into the mechanics of it. I just never had the time. And I say this to you honestly, individuals like Gerald Chaliff, if they would talk, could explain to the Wallace family why the LAPD won't solve this murder and why they have to cover it up. Now, here comes Bratton. He's coming out of the consent decree. Michael Cherkasky is supposed to know about the consent decree because he's the monitor. And they're having lunch together at the academy regularly. And they're, they're discussing what's going on. And all these reports, you, you can't tell me that they didn't advise him about the boy agony thing. And that alone would have, but, but they made sure that that monitorship stayed only monitoring people at the lower levels. There was not, nothing above, you know, the actual process of the leadership of LAPD. Just a year ago, Gerald Chaliff authored a report on the LAPD's response to the racial protests in May and June of 2020. And one has to really wonder, why every time the LAPD fucks up, Chaliff is there writing reports and being hailed as an independent counsel? Rodney King, Biggie, the unrest after George Floyd, all of these events, he's authored reports, not to mention being instrumental in the consent decree. This guy knows where all the bodies are buried. It's a lead I must chase down and talk to someone who knows Gerald. I know in reading all the documents that Chaliff was in the middle of the Biggie civil case. And I think that was by design. It isn't this odd coincidence. And I know Chaliff will probably never speak to me. Tonight, a new report reveals how the LAPD mishandled protests and violence across L.A. last spring. The report commissioned by the city council found there was poor planning, inadequate training, and a disregard for the rules on crowd control. Officers used hard foam projectiles, but many had only two hours of training with the weapon. Some people were detained for hours without water or the use of bathrooms. The LAPD says it's reviewing the report. The department and police commission are both doing their own reviews. Meantime, the LAPD says it's all already implemented changes in the training. Through five pages of the document, the two names that have become important are Eric Fairmont and Gerald Chaliff. One, a gangster who was in jail with Suge, the other, an LAPD fixer. Five pages in, and the narrative from the Wallace family lawyers is simple. Why can't the LAPD in the city of LA offer up the documents and evidence in their possession so the Wallace family lawyers were privy to what existed about the case. At times, I've been questioned as to why Biggie is still important in 2022. And that connection is plain as day. Pattern and practice. Gerald Chaliff represents the pattern and practice of the LAPD and the city of LA the pattern and practice of corruption across the board that only goes deeper and deeper and continues 
to this day. An explosive CBS News investigation looks into alleged gangs of deputies inside the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Our investigation found these deputies are allegedly encouraged to shoot people as part of their initiation. The California Attorney General launched a civil rights investigation into these claims last month. Maria Elena Salinas spoke exclusively with several deputies who claims these gangs have existed for decades. Hundreds of criminal cases in L.A. County are on hold. The D.A. has taken that extraordinary step after three LAPD officers were accused of falsifying evidence. Kikonai's Chris Holmstrom has details on this unprecedented investigation. Corruption has been going around L.A. for a long, long time. Community members in South L.A. are outraged after learning several LAPD officers who patrol their community are suspected of falsifying field interview cards during stops and wrongly portraying people as gang members. What continues to amaze me about this legal document is the abuse of power, the abuse of truth, and for many reasons, I've carried this document with me in my possession for the last few years. Like a Bible inside a hotel nightstand, it's always there bothering me. Rob Frank, who wrote the document and filing, hammers home each point with clarity. Here is another passage that gets to the heart of the abuse of the LAPD in the city of L.A. The city of L.A. had urged the judge to stop discovery in the civil trial and immediately proceed with the trial. The city had tons of information in their possession for at least 11 days and probably much longer. This, along with others that they were hiding, like who had viewed the internal affairs report of Mack and Perez and other evidence that will be listed the request to stop discovery when viewed in the light of all we know they were hiding at the time of the request in and of itself represents post-sanctions, calculated litigation abuse. The city had an affirmative duty at the very least to supplement their discovery responses about evidence linking David Mack and Suge Knight to the murder of Wallace. And there is no indication of any kind they would have voluntarily done so if the court had agreed to go to trial immediately. The only conclusion to be drawn from these events is the city of L.A. tried to dupe a federal court so this evidence would never be discovered. I'm quite sure if they, 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 they saw the first one, they would saw the second one because it's the same circle of people, you know? It is the same circle. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I got tapped on the shoulder by uh, by one of the cop's daughters that was involved, and she told me. I mean, you know, this isn't conjecture anymore. We know the facts. Yeah, it's the same people, same circle of people. Perez and was all involved. They were trying to kill me too because Perez... And, and, and Reg and his good friends, and Perez, and Sarita and Reg and his great friends, and so all those three together was trying to plot. That is the voice of Suge Knight in a recorded interview from jail. For some reason, although I've heard this audio before, something new caught my attention. What he clearly is stating here, albeit in a nuanced manner, is that LAPD officer Rafael Perez was also involved in the shooting of Tupac in Vegas when Suge was in the car. 
And Suge is trying to connect the dots and saying that possibly Reggie had his hands in not only the Tupac shooting, but Biggie also. Meaning that Reggie conspired with Rafael Perez against Suge, maybe Sharitha Knight, and also carried out the Biggie hit. It's just something to think about. Donnie Boy. Hey, let me ask you something. And it's something I haven't, I've, maybe I've thought about this. I was uh-huh. listening to the Suge audio again. Right? Yes. I'm not 100% sold on it. What uh-huh. he is basically saying in that audio is, hey, listen, Perez was involved not only in the Biggie murder. Right. But he also was a part of the murder of Tupac. Right. And he then continues on and places Reggie Wright Jr. and And Sharitha as like this conspiracy. So the thinking is Reggie Wright, Sharitha, and whoever else are making a play to take over death row. Yeah. They try and kill Suge in Vegas. They kill Tupac. Yeah. And then they go and kill Biggie. And they all know it'll be back to Shook because he has yeah. the best motive. I mean, is that is that crazy to think? To me, it is. To me, it's Shug just co- trying to cover his ass. To me, it's a slip up in Shug's respect because you know he's always claimed that he doesn't know these people. He's never met Matt. He's never met Perez. But but all of a sudden now he's placing them with them. You know, to me, it's a, more of a slip on Shug's part than authentic. I just. Especially when you look at all the evidence with regards to Mario Hammonds and what Eric Fairmont says. And, like, I've fallen in the camp of, I think Tupac got killed because Tupac decided to jump on a fucking crib hitman. You know, um, there's a lot of weird shit, for sure. Especially the fact that, that Gaines, for sure, was in Las Vegas during the time Tupac was killed. But I don't know. There's whispers that Mac and Perez were there, but that's not really ever been proven. Whereas Gaines was definitely on special assignment in Vegas during that time. I believe wholeheartedly that Suge is the one behind Vicky's murder. Wholeheartedly. Look, there's, again, there's a lot of circumstantial stuff around the Tupac thing, especially the fact that Reggie told, like, the security not to carry guns and things of that nature. I look at it as more of a just a disastrous job of security than anything more nefarious than that. I think it's something to think about. It didn't really occur to me until I listened to that audio again, but uh-huh. all right, let, let me run. Okay. <laughs>